Hello, and welcome to The Main Question, a podcast series from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. The year 2020 has particular significance for our beloved state of Maine, which turns 200 on March 15, 2020. There's celebrations and activities happening throughout the year to commemorate this milestone. We thought it might be interesting to turn the clock back to 1820, the year Maine was born. How did the vote to become a state and break away from Massachusetts come about? Who were the key players? And what was Maine like 200 years ago? We talk about all of this with Liam Reardon, a professor of history at UMaine who specializes in Revolution-era history. We also talk a bit about the study of his favorite subject and how it's not just memorizing facts, people, and dates. History is a way for us to reach a common understanding of where we come from and where we're going. The public tends to pay attention a lot when there's a, an anniversary or a birthday with a zero at the end. Uh, the moon landing, Woodstock, uh, the birth of the state of Maine, now uh, coming up on 200 years old. How do you, as historians, look at such events or such milestones? So it's been sort of fun for me. I'm a specialist in the late 18th century, and so the bicentennial of the state kind of comes up within my specialty. And I saw this coming and began to explore a little more to try to understand what was the statehood process like. And I think what it really has called to my attention is some pretty interesting ways that Maine today still faces a lot of the similar issues that were very active in the statehood era. What, what is the most interesting angle to you about looking back at the birth of the state of Maine? Any, anything you focus on? Well, you know, I think that the most famous aspect of the statehood process is the Maine-Missouri crisis. You know, it was an explosive moment in American national politics where the place of slavery and its relationship to the nation was really examined in public for the first time since the federal constitution. And so that's always a kind of fascinating place to start and a little bit of a complicated story, but also one that I think is pretty revealing. Yeah, for, for people that don't know, what, what, is the, what was the discrepancy or the controversy about that? So basically, when Missouri applied to become one of the states, it was part of the Louisiana Purchase, so it's a western territory, and it applies before Maine does, and a member of the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress announced a bill that successfully passed to prohibit Missouri entering with slavery as a legal institution. And this caused a real deadlock in Congress. So there's one similarity with the present, right? Very badly divided uh, national politics and partisanship. And when the main application to become a state came several months later, this became a way to try to address that problem. So the idea was a complicated, you know, sausage-making legislative package of a number of different bills. But essentially, Missouri would come in as a slave state and Maine would come in as a free state. And this would balance the national politics. What's interesting is that there were seven U.S. congressmen from Maine at the time. Maine at this point is still the district of Maine, part of Massachusetts. And five of those seven opposed Maine statehood under those terms. So a majority of our representatives and perhaps a majority of the Maine population by extension agreed that that was not 
an appropriate way for Maine to become a state. Now, that Maine majority lost by three votes in the congressional election, so it's forced upon them. And that's a really fascinating moment for me to think about, well, what if their two colleagues had joined them in opposition? That would have blocked Maine's entrance as part of this linkage to a slave state in Missouri. And I think it's an interesting thing to speculate about. Might that have changed the course of American history? Might we have had a different outcome than the Civil War 30 years later with such incredible bloodshed? I guess we can talk about the chronology and the length of time it took in a minute, but maybe first take us back to that time. How would you describe Maine in 1820? Where did people live? How many people were here uh, in the time leading up to the vote? What did Maine look like? So maybe the place to start is not just with 1820, but how we got to that moment of statehood. And for me, that story largely starts with the end of the American Revolution and a very substantial migration of English-speaking settlers to the District of Maine, overwhelmingly from southern New England that's overcrowded, doesn't have access to a lot of farmland, and so there's a huge surge of migration. You know, every 10 years with the census in 1790, 1800, 1810, 1820, we can just see the Maine population growing by leaps and bounds. It still is mostly concentrated on the coast and in the southwestern parts of the state, but we're beginning to see gradual movement up the river valleys. There were several votes taken uh, that finally led to the, to the 1820 vote. How did that, how did that whole timeline uh, work? So there are six votes from the 1790s up to the summer of 1819. And one of the striking things when you look at the voting pattern is that it was so heavily contested that people disagreed about this issue for such a long period of time. And I think that's really surprising to us in Maine today. You know, we all are familiar with the idea of being somewhat suspicious of people from away, of having a certain animosity toward Massachusetts. So I think it's a puzzle to us. Why would it have taken so long? It seems obvious that this would have happened, should have happened. And I think that's a kind of nice marker for us to realize that sometimes when we look back at the past from the present, we have to work a little harder to get past issues that seem obvious to us, right? It obviously wasn't obvious at the time. So the movement for Maine to separate changes over time, and it's highly contested, but it does finally have a overwhelming popular support by the summer of 1819. How did Maine uh, begin as part of Massachusetts, and what did Massachusetts think of, uh, of losing uh, part of them? So Maine... Is position within Massachusetts dates back to the mid-17th century. It's part of a long colonization process and really a lot of confusion and competition about what exactly is the status of land ownership and sovereignty in what we now call the state of Maine. So even among different colonial authorities, there was significant disagreement. So the French and the English uh, competed quite a bit over uh, Acadia. The French 
colonial settlement areas. And of course, this also is fundamentally wrapped around the place of Wabanaki sovereignty and Native American nations who actively cooperated and contested different European thrusts into the region. So part of the complexity of disengaging does have to do with how long and muddled the connection between Massachusetts and Maine had been, even by the late 18th century. Did the Native American populations here um, have uh, an opinion one way or the other? How, How strong were they for or against all this happening? So all of the voting records we have about the statehood issue reflect English-speaking adult men, right? So we have a relatively narrow electorate by how we think about the voting public today. And the Wabanaki population in this statehood era, the late 18th and early 19th century, is in a lot of respects at a really low ebb of its historical trajectory. It's been involved in colonization and colonial wars for decades, if not centuries. And I think the short answer is that most Wabanaki were suspicious of Maine independence and what that might mean for them. So the Penobscot in particular, but also the Passamaquoddy, had longstanding treaty relationships with the Massachusetts Bay Colony and then with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So what would happen with those working relationships if Maine became independent? And since Maine's emergence as an independent state is so linked to this booming population of English speakers in the state of Maine, that also represented a direct and really accelerating threat to Wabanaki territoriality and Wabanaki sovereignty in their homeland. Who were some of the the key players? Who were the most interesting figures that were involved with, with this with this birth of the state? So in a lot of ways, the Maine independence movement is connected to the emergence of the Jeffersonian Republican political party. So this uh, really comes out of the 1790s and a sort of more conservative Federalist Party that was a little bit more hierarchical in how it thought about the way a republic should develop. And then Jefferson is elected president in 1800 and really spearheads a sort of opening of American politics to an increasing number of white men. So the as these new English speakers are moving to Maine, they're overwhelmingly young and poor and settling on land that has not been developed by other English speakers previously. And so that's a real core constituency of the Jeffersonian Republican Party. So this kind of comes back to an earlier question you asked about, well, how did Massachusetts feel about losing the District of Maine by 1820? And in a lot of ways, by that year, many conservative Federalists in Massachusetts were really happy to get rid of Maine. Maine had had strong Jeffersonian Republican majorities for a couple of decades. Massachusetts was one of the last bastions of Federalist political strength. So there's a kind of interesting cross-purposes of place and partisanship on the main statehood issue by the end. 
Jeffersonian Republicans in Massachusetts didn't want Maine to separate. They didn't want to lose all those Jeffersonian Republican voters in the District of Maine. And Federalists in Massachusetts, well, they could see a real upside to cutting loose all of those Jeffersonian Republican voters in the state. So the key political leaders are people like William King, who was a very wealthy merchant in Bath, and his sort of newspaper connections and other Jeffersonian Republican politicians in the era. So once statehood is achieved, and we're talking, well, uh, March 15th, 1820 is the birthday, what changed? What how did things evolve? Did things change rapidly as a result of that? Or was this just a, you know, a piece of paper <laughs> or a glorified piece of paper in a way? Well, I do think that the post-1820 moment really does open a boom time in the main economy and the expansion of the state. And really, up through the Civil War, in a lot of ways, is really the heyday of shipbuilding, timber, lumber, growing population. So there are a lot of elements of Maine in that early 19th century period that we still recognize as sort of iconic elements of what Maine is today. One thing that's kind of interesting, though, is I, I do think that the politics of the state of Maine in the statehood era and in the decades thereafter are in something of a shambles. So we have a lot of governors are not elected by a majority of the population. A lot of these elections go to the legislature to decide because no single candidate had a majority. So I do think we see an interesting persistence of a real polarized electorate, a lot of differences of opinion, and that certainly is something we see up into the present. The more things change, the more they stay the same, I guess, right? Um, so I know you've taken a look a lot at uh, past and present connections uh, from Maine's beginning to, to present day. To talk about some of that and your observations of that. So, you know, it's been fun for me as a historian to see the sort of general public consciousness about the relatively distant past raised as a result of the bicentennial, right? Just in this morning's newspaper was an article about a bicentennial federal stamp, right? So in all sorts of ways, history is sort of bubbling up in ways that it doesn't on a day-to-day -day basis typically, when I think we are much more oriented toward the present or even the future. And in looking at that statehood era, I think it's helpful to us to recognize some aspects of Maine life today that were also really significant aspects of Maine life in the statehood era. And, you know, it's the, I think, really at the heart of historical thinking is a tension between trying to understand what changes and how things change but also being aware of deep continuities that some, you know, things are always changing, of course. And I don't think the old adage that history will repeat itself is really accurate because history is so complex, it never really repeats itself. But that said, the study of history is the study of human beings, human culture, human society. And there are aspects that remain remarkably persistent. So some of them I've already mentioned, things like 
very divided uh, partisan politics, big part of the statehood era, something we recognize today. Uh, the intensity of racial politics and the place of slavery, you know, that was hugely important in Maine in the statehood era, even though the state had a very small population of people of African descent. So I would say the same thing is true today, that there may not be a large population of people of African descent in the state of Maine, but because slavery was so crucial to the development of the United States, it remains a powerful issue today in the state, just as it was in the statehood era. The place of Wabanaki sovereignty is obviously a long continuity. And maybe a final one would be the significance of our international border with Canada, that Maine statehood also raised some really important borderland issues, not the least of which is that we had no idea where the international border was, and that the formerly colonial population that lived up there was largely French-speaking and was very isolated from the long statehood movement and all those votes that really was led by English speakers in the southwestern part of the state. So I think both in the statehood era and today, a lot of people in the St. John Valley feel distant from the sort of English center of Maine and Maine politics. And that certainly was true in the statehood era as well. Now, for a historian who studies the era that you do, I mean, like I can tell you're excited and you, 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 this, this has to be a, a, great, uh, a great thing because this is in your wheelhouse, basically. But um, the, the larger point of studying history, uh, you know, some people think, oh, it's an academic pursuit and there's these dusty books and, and, and such. And, uh, but maybe how do you talk to students about um, why this is a focus and, and a thing that excites you and why they should study history? The, the larger point of why, why study history at all? There are a couple of ways to answer that question. And I think one challenge is that a lot of people associate history with the memorization of dates and facts and important individuals. And there is an element of that in history, right? We are a sort of fact-based discipline. We want to have a command of those, that type of information. A common memory, really. But at the university level, you know, for my students here at UMaine, really the ground we move to is history as an interpretive art that we cannot memorize every fact about the past, and we really don't want to either. We want to think about what is important, what are the elements of the past that are most meaningful to us, and how do we explain them in a way that leads us to better self-understanding and better sense of where we came from in the past. I think with something like the bicentennial of statehood, that raises yet another dimension of history, and that is this question of historical commemoration, right? This is different than a scholar writing a book or writing an article. It's different than what I necessarily do in the classroom or what a middle school or high school history teacher does in their classroom. And I do think this gets to that issue of 
what do we share in common? What do we have as a civic culture that holds us together and helps us to realize something that we share? And that is a really valuable part of history, that history has a public function to play in helping us understand who we are as a collectivity. How is uh, the state's history uh, in, talked about and taught at UMaine? Is, are, is it a focus area? Sure. Maine has some uh, great faculty at the university who focus on Maine history and Maine studies. Um, so in particular, I think that the Maine Folk Life Center is a real treasure that uh, really has been recognized by the Library of Congress, who has purchased a rich oral history collection that's been built there over the decades. And we still have digital copies here, but the original acetate is now in Washington, D.C. Uh, the Maine Folk Life Center is also connected to the Maine Studies Program that's very active, does a lot of teaching around Maine issues. Also, some really important centers like the Franco-American Center and uh, Native American Studies on campus. These are all places with strong faculty and rich student traditions of understanding Maine in a deeper way. Any info that you know of or could share about how the Bicentennial is being celebrated? Any uh, signature events coming up? Uh, are you baking a cake on the 15th or...? <laughs> Uh, there is going to be a big birthday party for the state in Augusta on March 15th. Uh, there's also a parade planned in uh, Lewiston-Auburn sometime in the summer. And then I think you really see the excitement and interest in history at the local level. And I think just about every public library has a history room and has a county genealogical society, and they are all hosting speakers and doing local events that think about that connection between local history and state history. Between now and this summer, I imagine you're, uh, you're pretty busy with all this stuff going on. It is a nice opportunity for me to get out and give local talks. I bet. Um, and so for people that want to dig into this topic more deeply, where, where would you send them? What would you, what would you tell them? So I think there are two great places to start if you really want to dig deeper into Maine history. One would be to take a look at a volume called The Historical Atlas of Maine. This was published a couple of years ago by the University of Maine Press and was co-edited by Stephen Hornsby, a historical geographer here at the University of Maine, and Richard Judd, a history professor at the University of Maine. And it is an award-winning book that combines just terrific cartography and purpose-made maps with period images and a reasonable amount of interpretive text to explain what's going on in those images. So uh, the Historical Atlas of Maine is a great source to really look at Maine history from the Ice Age up to the 20th century. And the other source that's really terrific and easily accessible is a website created by the Maine Historical Society. Uh, it's called the Maine Memory Network, and they've been building that for years as a collaboration with individuals and local historical societies and libraries. And there is just a wealth of material that they've put up there, images, text, transcriptions of documents. And so if you 
have a love of Maine history, that's a great place to go and get lost and explore all the treasures that are there. Well, great stuff. Thank, thanks for sharing it with us. And happy birthday, Maine. Happy birthday, Maine. Happy birthday, indeed. Thanks for tuning us in. You'll find this in all of our episodes in places like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Send us your thoughts on what you hear at mainquestion at maine.edu. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question. <laughs>